Good morning, everybody. Privilege to be with you again. Uh, always, always fun to have the chance to speak with you, but always enjoy just being part of worship here at Restoration. It's a terrific community. Spirituality, rightly understood, is the humble reception of grace and the confident embrace of love. It's a life of wonder and joy and worship and gratitude and simplicity and servanthood, humility, courage, and truth. When Jesus offered this spirituality rightly understood, people left everything to claim it. They gave up their possessions, they walked away from their careers, they renounced bad habits and sins, they accepted ridicule and suffering, and they did it gladly. They followed this new way of Christ, laughing and weeping and dancing and celebrating. They, they understood that this was a marvel of grace, that they were being loved in spite of themselves. Spirituality wrongly understood produces people who mistake their incapacity to love as righteous superiority. It produces people with cold hearts and sad faces and inauthentic lives and shriveled souls, all because they have missed the marvel of grace, this grand essential. Long time ago, Kirsten and I took some dancing lessons. It's about 25 years ago. One of the two of us thought this would be fun. And the other one of us said yes, because that one is a gracious person, and he thought it would be good. <laughs> it would be a good way of earning some matrimonial bonus points, maybe like frequent flyer miles that could be cashed in at some later point. Our instructors and most of the other students, my wife included, were wonderful dancers, poetry in motion. I, on the other hand, was a catastrophe waiting for a place to happen. I tried. I really did. I listened to all the instructions. I counted out all the every beats, every beat. And I could see what I was supposed to be doing. But when it was time to do it, I was counting and stomping around the floor with my tongue hanging out. One of the instructors tried to give me a little remedial attention, but I wore her down pretty quickly, too. In a very kind way, she finally told me that I was only lacking one thing, grace. She then went on to elaborate that I was also deficient in balance, coordination, <laughs> ability to make gross motor movements without imperiling others in the room. But in a single word, it was grace. Even though the dancing lessons were humiliating and hardly worth the matrimonial bonus points, I learned an important lesson from that experience. Without grace, life is a clumsy, awkward business. Without grace, people get hurt. Our text from this morning, for this morning comes from John 11, 47 through 53. It says that the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. 
And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Caiaphas was respected as a religious leader, but he knew nothing about grace. He was the personification of spirituality wrongly understood. Smug, self-righteous, straight as a ruler and twice as narrow. Caiaphas would have preferred not to have had to deal with Jesus at all, but like many others before and since, he didn't have any choice about it. He was the high priest in Jerusalem during the years that Jesus was making headlines throughout Judea. It was a big job. He had responsibility for political and civil matters as well as the religious affairs in the temple city. He was sort of like an archbishop and prime minister rolled into one. And as the high priest, Caiaphas presided over the great Sanhedrin, 70 men of prosperity and prestige who made up the highest judicial authority in Israel. Unlike our juries, which represent a cross-section of society, the members of the Sanhedrin held hereditary positions that preserved a predictably narrow view about the dispensation of justice. These rulers had a vested interest in preserving the status quo and their own privileged positions over the people. The Sanhedrin carefully defined what they were against over the span of a generation, using the basic laws of the Ten Commandments and the teachings of Moses, they had developed a vast and cumbersome legal structure with 250 commands and 365 prohibitions, rules about such petty things as the unlawfulness of eating an egg that was laid on the Sabbath. They were against associating with the wrong kinds of people, they were against allowing women status and rights within the culture. They were against all manner of defilement and impurity. But more than anything else, these legalists were against people who failed to follow all the rules. Although he was the most revered priest in the land, there were a few things Caiaphas liked less than the celebration of the Jewish holidays. The Passover festival in particular never failed to cause him enormous headaches. Passover was an annual powder keg, just waiting for a spark to ignite it. Jerusalem was always packed with pilgrims from all over the region, crowds full of anticipation and hope, their minds stirred by the ancient Passover themes of deliverance from oppressors and an inheritance 
in the promised land. Especially during this holiday, the Roman occupation of Palestine stuck in the craws of the Jews more than usual. Even casual conversations were spiced with talk about this long-promised Messiah. The danger every year was that some fanatic would seize the moment to whip the throngs of people into an anti-Roman rebellion that would surely end in a bloodbath. The arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem on the Sunday before Passover did not bode well for a trouble-free holiday. As a charismatic leader with a large following, rumors had preceded Jesus and had aroused the suspicions of the Sanhedrin. From the outset of his ministry, he had been doing and saying things which set him in conflict with those who regarded themselves as the spiritual elite of the land. He didn't have the proper upbringing, the proper credentials, the proper entourage. Jesus fraternized with the wrong sort of people. He courted controversy with provocative preaching and demonstrations. And Jesus insisted on interpreting the Jewish law in ways which didn't fit traditional thinking and conduct. He made the guardians of the status quo really nervous. Not only did he disregard their religious regulations, he criticized the teachers of the law for caring more about the rules than they did about people. And he accused them and challenged their authority publicly. Now, in their eyes, Jesus' doctrine was heretical and his behavior was outrageous. The members of the Sanhedrin became even more nervous when they saw how the crowds reacted to him. Those who followed Jesus saw in him a different kind of authority, a spirituality rightly understood that compelled people to listen and to follow and to change. His words, as novel and controversial as they were, had the ring of truth to them. However, there was something more to this teacher, something that elevated him above the usual cranks and quacks and religious peddlers who manipulated the desperate and the guilty and the gullible. For one thing, Jesus' ministry was remarkably free of razzmatazz, especially that of self-promotion. There was no campaigning, no attempt to capitalize on the people's adulation of him. The things he said and did attracted plenty of attention, but he actually tried to escape that publicity. He often told people, go on your way and say nothing of this to anyone. But in the coffee shops and the supermarkets and the health clubs from Nazareth to Jerusalem, the name of Jesus was on everyone's lips. The crowds trailed after him wherever he went, first out of curiosity, but later out of conviction. Then during Passover, Jesus ventured into the lion's den of the religious establishment without toning down any of his potentially disruptive behavior. In fact, it seemed that he kicked it up a notch, making confrontation inevitable. 
He waltzed into the temple and he stirred up such a fuss, claiming that the house of God had become a den of thieves. He took it upon himself to purge it of the sellers and money changers. Now to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, who were so intent on keeping peace on behalf of their Roman overlords, and who also profited considerably by skimming from the temple trade. Such a disturbance caused great alarm. They sent a delegation to the temple to have a showdown with this troublemaker. Dozens of the most powerful leaders in Jerusalem confronted Jesus and his ragtag band of disciples. They asked him, where do you get your authority? Expecting him to squirm. But instead he stymied them with a question of his own. And he sent them scurrying in embarrassment. The great Sanhedrin had challenged a peasant carpenter turned rabbi and lost. And word would soon spread throughout the city. Caiaphas knew something had to be done. If we let this man go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas was respected as a religious leader, but he knew nothing about grace. The Sanhedrin, with Caiaphas presiding over it, had already committed to a course which would conclude in the, conclude in the execution of Jesus. For three years, they had an opportunity to hear this message of grace, to understand this spirituality rightly understood. But rather than being convicted and changed by the truth, they were hardened against it. The midnight gathering in the high priest's chambers represented a despicable Convergence of evil. From Matthew 26, 59 through 66. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. The jurists in this kangaroo court were driven by hatred and cruelty. There wasn't a hint of justice in these proceedings. When a person or a group chooses to resist God, they must push harder and harder in opposition to grace. 
Caiaphas and his cohorts were blinded by rage and bent on only one outcome. They, they wanted Jesus dead. The high priest might have defended their judgment in this way. He, it's nothing but a ragtail rabbi, a rabble-rouser from a hick town in Galilee. Our ancestors have been leaders in this temple for more generations than you can imagine. We've been at the center of power in Jerusalem since we returned from captivity in Babylon. This is just prudent politics. Jesus brought this upon himself. Beneath all of Caiaphas's self-righteous indignation, envy burned. The chief priest was proud. He was proud of his race, he was proud of his status, proud of his religion, proud of his morality, proud of his politics. And Jesus confronted that pride. He challenged Caiaphas' authority because he possessed true authority. Jesus claimed to teach about God, to drive out demons and heal diseases and to forgive sins. And there were demonstrations of power and truth to back up his claims. They were authentic, effortless, vivid revelations from God. Christ's authority was unlike that of Caiaphas. The high priest could appeal only to the law, to traditions and prohibitions. He was envious of Jesus and determined to get rid of him. And that same envy still exists. There are many who still resist Jesus. C.S. Lewis called Christ the transcendental interferer. Many people resent his intrusion into their private affairs, his standards of love and righteousness, his expectation of our loyalty and obedience. They perceive Jesus as a threatening rival who disturbs their peace and undermines their personal autonomy. They protest, why can't he mind his own business and leave us alone? To which Jesus responds that we are his business and he will never leave us alone. Frederick Buechner writes in his book, Peculiar Treasures, the high priest was essentially a mathematician. His argument ran that it is better for one man to get it in the neck for the sake of many than for many to get it in the neck for the sake of one man. His grim arithmetic proves unassailable. The arithmetic of Jesus, on the other hand, was atrocious. He said that heaven rejoices more over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need to. He said that the more you give away, the more you have. He said that to gain your life, you need to lose it. But it's curious that in the matter of deciding his own fate, Jesus came to the same conclusion that Caiaphas did. In the economy of God, it was also better for one man to die for the sake of the many. Romans 5.15 says, If the many died for the sake of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, 
overflow to the many. God left it up to this one man, his own son, his only son, to bear all the sin and to provide all the salvation. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken and afflicted, smitten by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It was God's plan from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden until the end of time, for Jesus Christ to become the scapegoat for our sins. Leviticus 16, 20 through 22, God spelled out what was required of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, to make an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of the people. He is to lay both hands on the head of a live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. This went on for generations on the day of atonement, the day of Yom Kippur, when God settled our sin debt through the laying of those sins on the head of the scapegoat. And like that sacrificial animal of the Old Testament, our scapegoat, the beloved Son of God, carried our sins away to a solitary place, a place of utter desolation, a place even separated from his Father. And there Jesus paid the price of our disobedience once and forever. The purpose of Christ's suffering and death was to take our punishment The one who was truly innocent died alone in our place. But by every justice-driven beat of our hearts, we cry out, but that's not fair. Thank God that it isn't fair. Thank God that it is infinitely merciful instead. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us with an inexplicable grace. God had to find the answer to our sin problem within himself. Now we think about that. When somebody does us wrong, talks about us behind our backs, or cheats us out of money, or lies about us, insults me or my family, reneges on an obligation, how easy is it for us to forgive that person? Now, maybe if he or she asks for forgiveness, makes the appropriate apologies and restitution, eventually we may let them off the hook. But even that is an enormous task that usually takes an incredible length of time. But our Heavenly Father didn't wait around for us to make the first move. He sent his son to the cross where he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Despised and forsaken, Jesus endured the anguish we cannot comprehend to grant us a victory that we do not deserve. Now you might be thinking, but I'm really a good person. I give to the United Way. I don't abuse alcohol or drugs. I don't cheat on my taxes or on my spouse. I play with my kids. I put food on the table, a roof over their head. I'm a decent human being. Why did Jesus have to die for me? Why can't the right things I do outweigh the wrong? That should be good enough. But that is spirituality wrongly understood. It's the same self-righteousness of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Measuring ourselves against our own standard of goodness. Missing the grand essential of grace. God's standard is not good enough. It's perfection. What we do on our own part, away from Jesus, amounts to nothing. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. Romans 3, 12 says, all have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So God offered himself as the remedy for our sin. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Father gave his Son as the perfect embodiment of grace. John 1, 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. It was grace, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. It was grace that moved into the neighborhood and healed the sick and cured the blind and raised the dead. It was grace that went to dinner with tax collectors. Grace that was called a friend of sinners. Grace that would not cast the first stone. It was grace that was nailed to the cross with all of our sin and all of our guilt. It was grace that the tomb could not hold. It is grace that sits on the throne of heaven at the right hand of the Father. And it is grace that will come back for you and me. The cherished old song says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. When we come to face to face with the dire straits of our sin, how we lie brazenly, cheat without scruples, lust without regret, betray our friends to get ahead, all with a spirit of defiance and indifference. When we see our twisted lives as they really are, it causes us to cower. That is the grace that runs ahead, the grace that convicts us of our need for salvation. 
And then we meet our Savior who endured the agony and the shame of the cross because we are so precious to him. And such is the grace that relieves all our fears. People like Caiaphas and the members of the Sanhedrin had devoted their lives to a spirituality wrongly understood. They were offended by Jesus. They were offended by the marvel of grace. Jesus told them in Luke 7.32, we played the flute for you, but you would not dance. But for those who hear the music of grace, the dance goes on and on. When we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. When every other word has been used up and worn out, we will just be starting to sing about grace. The question for every human being, the question for each one of us here, what will we do with this invitation to grace? What will we do with our sin? There are really only two choices. You can say, I'll take care of it myself. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my fate. There is this battle that rages inside every human heart with arrogance and pride and self-sufficiency. And some of us have said, and we're saying it right now, I don't want to bend my knee to anyone or anything. I don't need to be saved from anything, let alone from my sin. The Bible is really clear about that option, though. It says the wages of sin is death. The inevitable outcome of that decision is eternal separation from God, from joy and peace and beauty and hope and love and truth. But that's a choice. Or you can make a different choice. You can say, I want Jesus. I want Jesus to deal with my sin. I want Jesus to give me that grace. I need him to save me because he died to pay my moral debt and then rose to conquer death. I can receive his mercy and his grace. I want to experience that abundant life following him in this world and that eternal life with him forever. I choose Jesus. God doesn't want to lose a single precious life, but he gives everyone a choice. The most important one that each one of us can make. Who are you trusting to deal with your sin? Who are you trusting to set things right in your relationship with God? Who are you trusting to save you? Who are you trusting with your eternity? Who are you trusting? Yourself or Jesus? You can make that decision. Would you bow your heads with me?
for those of you who've never been clear on this decision before, perhaps this is the day, this is the time. And you can pray this prayer along with me. Lord Jesus, I confess today that I'm a sinner. I understand what you did when you went to the cross, that you were taking my place, that you were paying my debt. Please forgive me for my sins. Thank you for such amazing grace that is offered as a gift because of what you have accomplished on my behalf. I want to ask you now to be my Savior, to be my Lord, my teacher, and my friend. With your help, I'd ask that you would let me live each day in obedience and gratitude. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me so much that you would make a way for us to spend eternity together. Lord, there are also some of us who've been Christ followers for a while, but we're still struggling with a particular challenge or sin or regret. Perhaps our relationship with you has grown cold and stale. Maybe we've become overcome by doubts and fears and worries. We want to lay those burdens before you today, asking for your forgiveness and trusting your grace to set us free. We're so glad that all our sins, past, present, and future, have been carried away. Because of your great sacrifice, we live in this daily assurance that we are forgiven and cleansed and accompanied and healed, restored, and loved. We thank you, Jesus. We praise you. We trust you. We love you. In your blessed name we pray. Amen.